Well, good morning. Happy Family Day weekend. I hope to see uh, many of you out at the pond tomorrow. My family and I will be there, toboggan and all. Well, I'm feeling particularly good this morning uh, because I've given up coffee for Lent, and uh, since it's Sunday, I have already had two cups of the Bull Rider coffee that Keith and Laurel prepared this morning. So uh, uh, I hope you're feeling as good as I am. Well, this morning uh, we begin our sermon series on the season of Lent. As we journey together toward Easter, toward the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, if you're uh, visiting with us or if you weren't with us last week, you won't know that I challenge the church, all of us here, to choose something to fast from during this 40-day season of Lent. And since uh, Sundays are the, season, or the, the day of, of the season that we get to break the fast, it meant that those 40 days actually started last Wednesday, what's traditionally been called Ash Wednesday. Now, if you weren't here, you, you wouldn't have known that you were to begin your fast last Wednesday, so you're excused. Um, but that doesn't mean you're off the hook. So, you see, a 36-day fast is still better than no fast at all. And so, for those of you who forgot about it, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, uh, but for those of you who weren't here, um, tomorrow's a great day to start a fast for Lent. I have to say I'm a little bit overwhelmed by the response from many of you uh, in, in asking to fast from something. I was kind of expecting a little bit of hesitancy, maybe some skepticism, and I'm sure there is that out there as well. But I was also kind of blown away by the response of people that were eager to try this. People who had said, you know, I've, I've never taken part in something like this, but I think it's a great idea and, and I want to try it out. And I know uh, Don put it on our Facebook page. So if you saw that, and I know there were several responses of people saying, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do this, and this is what I'm going to try. So there's been some really creative ideas. I won't put them on the spot, but there's a certain uh, staff member that is going to, along with her husband, give up Netflix for Lent. That's, that's pretty powerful stuff, I think, at least. It's no coffee, but, you know, Netflix is a close second. Now, I don't expect you to uh, share what you're fasting from. That's between you and God. You don't have to share that. But uh, if you're like me, you probably need a little bit more accountability with your fast. So I've already told you, you know, I'm, I'm fasting from coffee. I'm wondering if anyone's willing to share here uh, something that they're going to try fasting from during the season. Chocolate. Ah, well, I am going to put my wife on the spot and say you're in the same, same boat as her. So that's pretty good. Candy, oh, very good. Well done. I'm impressed. Anyone else? Tony? Television, full stop. Wow, that's hard during the Olympics, isn't it? I think so. Anyone else? See, these are also generating some ideas for you latecomers, so you can start tomorrow. You know, you can kind of pick from one of these maybe. Brussels sprouts, yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's a real sacrifice. Was that Al over here? Was that, yeah, I, yeah. 
George, George, that was George. All right. Everyone, you hold George accountable to that, all right? Every Sunday. And you know what? Even better, bring a good helping of Brussels sprouts for him every Sunday because Sunday, all right? Well, for those of you uh, who aren't giving up social media, and that's actually a big one for, for millennials and uh, Gen Zers or Zers, uh, giving up social media is actually a pretty popular one these days. But if you aren't giving up social media, um, you can check out hashtags on Twitter. It's really interesting not only to see, again, how creative people are with what they're fasting from, but it's actually a really, really neat way to kind of get connected more to the global church. Because, of course, people are on Twitter all over the world. And so it kind of expands our horizons a little bit as we kind of check out people from all over the world who are uh, hashtag, you know, whether it's Lent or Lent Fast or Lent 2018, you get to see what people are doing in different parts of the world. And you get to see God's kingdom, his church at work in those areas. Well, this morning is going to be a little bit different because it is the launch for the series. Um, so for each of the weeks, we're going to drill down a little bit on one aspect of fasting and what Scripture has to say about that and what it can teach us. But this morning, we're, we're going to do three things, all right? So um, the first thing is we want to look at Lent a little bit closer. What is it? Why is it called that? What is Lent? Uh, why might we here at Oak Park want to participate in something like that. And then the second thing is we want to talk uh, a little bit more, oh, there we go. We want to talk a little bit more about, uh, broadly about the series itself, okay? So we want to uh, see what the weeks are that we're going to explore. So I'll quickly take you through that so you know what to expect in the coming weeks, uh, each of the particular disciplines. And then the third thing that we're going to do this morning is we're going to very briefly at the end explore the first aspect of the series. And that is simply uh, that we fast because Jesus fasted. It's pretty simple. Even basic. But I actually think in some ways that it sets up the whole thing, right? That actually without, without that kind of a foundation, we're probably on a little bit shaky ground. And so we'll look a little bit at that at the end of the message this morning. Okay, so let's start with a couple thoughts that might be going through your mind about Lent more generally. The first, and this is a serious one, some of you may have some Lenten baggage, we'll call it. It's not really easy to shake. Now, I know that a lot of you may never have heard of Lent. You may never have practiced Lent. You may have heard of it, may not have practiced it in any serious way. But others of you may have had some negative experiences of Lent in the past. You know, like all practices and all disciplines that are intended to aid and to help us in our spiritual faith, the practice of Lent has been misused throughout Christian history. The church has used it as a kind of tool of manipulation at times. It's imposed it improperly, creating a kind of system of pressure, heaping up kind of unnecessary guilt upon its members to 
to keep control over them. And some of you may have memories of kind of extreme restrictions or extreme asceticism during the season, whether that was dietary or otherwise. You know, I think the sad thing is those, those restrictions often were never explained in a, in a positive or in a constructive way. The church ought to be repentant for that. And so our goal in this series is in no way to try to stir up those negative connotations, those negative memories you may have from Lent. But instead, the idea of the series is to introduce a practice for many of you that you've never heard of or never taken part in as a spiritual discipline. And then in a way, it's also to try to redeem this practice for those of you who may have this Lenten baggage, weighing them down, skeptical, unsure why we would take part in something like this. Well, another thought you may have is that, um, and this is somewhat related to the first, I guess, I had a friend of mine last year, as we were talking about Lent, he said, you know, I, I don't get it. I think it's completely wrong-headed. He said, what, what is this about giving up something? You know, as, as Christians, we ought to be doing more. We should be adding something in Lent, not giving up something. And in a way, you know, I, I think he has a point. And we're going to talk about this more in coming weeks, so a little bit of a spoiler alert here. But the whole point of Lent is not wholly just to give something up. It's not arbitrary, Right? We don't just pick something and give it up, and that's the whole point of Lent. But it's one discipline. It's one discipline that's been typically joined with the disciplines of prayer and giving. That's kind of the three, three focuses of Lent. These are the three disciplines that go together. And this year, here at Oak Park, we're choosing fasting to focus on. That doesn't mean it's you know, instead of the other two. It should always go together. And maybe in, in years to come, we'll pick giving or we'll pick prayer as the particular focus we kind of drill down on. But this year, we want to go deeper with the practice of fasting, what it is and why we might take part. And it's not just that it's one of the three emphases, but it's also that we tend to couch it always in negative terms, right? Right? So it's easier to say, well, I'm fasting from X, Y, Z, right? But throughout the sermon series, we're going to try to frame it in a little bit more constructive manner. So you might say something like, well, I'm fasting for. I might say something like, I'm fasting for a break from the addiction of caffeine. Or you might say something like, well, uh, my fasting from coffee teaches me to what? To not depend on it, to not rely upon it, right? You see how these are a little bit more constructive ways we can frame it. You know, we're not robots. There aren't these, you know, simple inputs that just come into our bodies and then we have outputs, whatever that is, right? We can't just replace an input. Anytime we replace something or get rid of something, it affects us. It affects us in many different ways, and we're going to talk about those ways in a little bit more depth in the upcoming weeks. 
So let's uh, talk about Lent itself. And people get a little bit hung up on the funny name. Nobody really knows what it means, why it means anything. Um, I've been saying for years that, you know, we ought to really just go back to the original Latin term for the season. It's so much more catchy, uh, quadragesima, of course. And if you want to be really popular with your neighbors, you can ask them what they're giving up for quadragesima. It's going to be very popular. Um, in the Eastern Church, sometimes it's called Great Lent, or actually in the, in the ancient Syrian church, which I, I like the best, they just call it the Great Fast, uh, which is a pretty apropos name for it, I think. Uh, the truth is, the term Lent simply means spring season. <laughs> That's all it is. It's from Middle English, and I, I think, where's Frank? Is it, it's Dutch, right? Ruth, Richard, the, this is the spring, or close to it, right? Uh, still. So there's no, uh, there's no churchiness to the name. There's nothing sacred about the name Lent. It's simply a name for a season, and even though it really does not feel like spring season out there in Calgary right now, uh, hopefully, hopefully by the end, when we're celebrating Easter, we will see a, a few signs of that. So what good is Lent? Why might we want to take part in it? Well, I think first and foremost, we need to be in the habit of talking about Lent as a practice. We practice Lent. It's a kind of, um, a kind of training regime that we take part in together, side by side. You know, we left the podiums and the Olympic medals up here, you'll notice from last week, Martin had used them. When I, uh, when I was younger and playing hockey, I had the opportunity to train in the off-season in tons of different gyms. But by far the most interesting, the most fascinating gym that I got to train in in the off-season was the high-performance gym at the Oval. And it wasn't because I was high-performance. I knew a guy who knew a guy. But the point was, there was all these Olympians, bobsledders, speed skaters who would train in this gym. What was so interesting to me as I watched them train in their off-season or off-ice or whatever it was training was, was the level of variability, the diversity in how they train. So, for those of you who go to the gym and lift weights regularly, you know, you might break it up into, what, legs day, back and chest Arms Day, maybe, something like that. It's been too long for me. I don't actually know. <laughs> but you would see these Olympians, and they'd be doing exercises with, with sometimes almost no weight. I remember seeing this uh, bobsledder. You know, those guys are big guys. A wooden bar doing bench press. You know, the guy could probably bench press 400 pounds. But he was doing hundreds of repetitions with a wooden bar, right? Or sometimes it would be the opposite, and you'd see him with 400 pounds on the bench press, and he would just do one, <laughs> one repetition. Sometimes they were in the gym twice a day. You would see them in the morning, and they would come back before dinner. Other times, they were in the gym a couple times a week, maybe even a whole week off. Never the same. Sometimes high anaerobic, low aerobic. Sometimes low, high anaerobic, low, 
sometimes low anaerobic, high aerobic, whatever it was. Variability. My whole point here is that when we think about Olympic athletes training, we rarely appreciate that level of diversity and variability in their off-sport training, right? But these athletes have figured out that in order to prepare optimally for their sport, they cannot go to the gym and do the same thing day in and day out. In order for their muscles to be toned, to grow, to be broken down, right? That's how we get stronger. We get stronger and we get healthier by being destroyed. The proteins and the muscles are destroyed and then they're built back up better. But constantly breaking down your muscles without the needed breaks or the variability, the needed change, it won't lead to increased health or strength. It will just simply destroy you. And so physical bodies need change, and they need breaks, and they need challenge. You want your body peaking in tip-top condition when you get on that plane for the Olympics. Not six months before. Certainly not six months after. And the same goes for our spiritual weight training. Our spiritual health. We need breaks, we need change, and we need challenge. And this is why very early on, we have examples from maybe 100 years after Jesus lived. Second century, Irenaeus of Lyon in France, talking about the season of Lent. A season that prepared the followers of Jesus Christ in France for Easter. And we know by the 4th century that there were councils in the church that talked about a 40-day season leading up to Easter. And then certainly, definitively, by the 6th century, there was a Lenten season that looked very much like it does today, although probably a lot stricter than you or I are taking part in. It was basically a vegan diet, no animal products at all. You know, sometimes people get hung up on the word tradition. Now, we shouldn't listen to traditions, but the word tradition simply means a handing on, a passing down. There's nothing wrong with that. We do that with our children, with our grandchildren, right? The word is, is about protecting through a practice a truth that is held within it, okay? And so could there be something called dead tradition? Of course. If you forget the truth that you're handing down through that practice, then that's not worth very much at all, is it? But if you're always cognizant of that truth, that we practice this way, that we hand off, we hand down because of this, then I think traditions are actually pretty good things. And so the reason for implementing a season like Lent is, is really not unlike the final season of intense training from an Olympic athlete before the Games. As we look toward Easter, 
toward that central celebration of the Christian faith, the feasting that comes with the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday, well, we ought to discipline ourselves, to chasten ourselves, to restrain and even abstain from things in order to anticipate and prepare for that party. Again, this is a theme we'll pick up later in the series, but there's a bit of a snippet for, for you, for what's to come. Okay, so we've, we've talked about Lent, what it is, why we might take part in the practice of fasting and prayer and giving in a kind of more sustained or more focused manner as we journey together toward Easter. Let me just take a minute here and outline the weeks of the series so you know uh, where we're headed. I tried to frame each of the sermons as kind of a response to the, to the intro, fasting teaches us, or fasting helps us to. The week one here this morning is be like Jesus. Week two is to repent from sin. Week three will be to live disciplined. Week four will be to acknowledge our mortality. Week five will be to save extra for the poor. And week six, which is traditionally known as Palm Sunday, will be to anticipate Easter. And then finally, it'll be capped by Easter Sunday and that great feasting celebration. So you've already heard a bit about how Lent and our corporate, our family practice of fasting together can speak to some of these aspects, but uh, we'll take each one in the coming weeks and we'll explore in more depth And we'll try to bring different parts of Scripture to light through these lenses. So this morning, with the time remaining, uh, I want us to consider the fact that fasting teaches us to be like Jesus. We can finally dive a little bit into Scripture here. And I want us to read together the account in Matthew of Jesus' temptation in the desert. And the video before the sermon gave you a little uh, piece of that. So, um, this is, I'm not being biased at all, but right down here, this half, you are going to read the voice of Satan. Sorry. It had to be one half. I guess I could have taken it. Yeah, anyway. Um, and this half, you are going to read Jesus' response, okay? So, no fighting after. Um, and and I will, I'll read the narration parts of the text. So it'll be on the screen here. And uh, the Satan's words will be in orange, and Jesus' words will kind of be in uh, blue color. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, Jesus answered. Sorry, I was slow. And then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. Jesus answered him. 
Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And Jesus said to him, And then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Notice with me for a minute how this scripture begins. Remember back to the start? Then Jesus was led by the Spirit. You see, the the account comes directly after what? His baptism. This amazing story, right? Jesus comes to John to be baptized. The heavens open up. This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. The Spirit descends like a dove. It's after one of the the clearest declarations in all of Scripture that this Jesus, this one, this man is divine. He is the Son of God. And then what? He gets lost? Takes a a wrong turn? Forgets Google Maps on his phone? No, it says the Spirit leads him. The Spirit leads him into the desert. The Spirit is not the tempter, the the Satan, the accuser. But it does seem that the Spirit is knowingly leading Jesus toward testing, toward trial. Makes me a little uncomfortable. Here's where it really touches down with with our topic this morning. You see, we fast because Jesus fasted. And we know that the Spirit led Jesus into the desert, and He certainly will direct us toward testing too. The reality that the Spirit can lead us into trials is also always accompanied with promises in Scripture, isn't it? Promises that the Spirit will never leave you nor forsake you. Promises that the tempting, the trials will never be too much for you to bear. Or Jesus' words at the end of the Gospel of Matthew when he assures his followers that he will be with us until the end of the age. Here's the thing about the Gospel, friends. It doesn't make life automatically easy. It doesn't mean that you or I are exempt from trials, from illness, from the snares of the devil, whether they're dressed in money or in power or in sex, they will be there. Our our faith is not some sort of force field or force shield like the kids would pretend that protects us against bad things. And anyone who tells you otherwise is peddling a false gospel. Our faith is one that sees the brokenness, the hurt, 
the pain, the heartache, the illness, the troubles, the sickness. It sees those for what they really are. And it says, this is what we've been training for. Right? This is why the Spirit led me to trials and to troubles and to testing. This is why I did spiritual interval training. Why I did two-a-days. Why I did fasting during the season of Lent. Because you and I both know that if we aren't prepared and if we haven't done the day-in and the day-out hard work of off-peak training, when the crisis happens, we won't be in a place to respond the way Jesus did. Jesus reminds us in Luke 5 that the time will come when the bridegroom is gone, right? And then what? Then it will be time for fasting and prayer, he says. We fast because Jesus fasted. Fasting teaches us to be like Jesus. And here's the key. Fasting teaches us to be like Jesus so that so that we can respond to trials and temptations and testing in the same way that Jesus did. Friends, there is a serious illness that has infected Christianity in the last hundred years. It goes a little something like this. God wants you to be happy and healthy and prosperous and comfortable at all times. Full stop. And if you're not, well... If you're not, it means you simply do not have enough faith in God. So if you're sick, or if you're struggling, if you're in financial difficulty, well, then you must not have enough faith. And we can call it health and wealth gospel. We can call it prosperity gospel. Name it or claim it. Whatever title you want to label it. We have to be clear that it is a cancer on the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the true gospel of Jesus Christ promises us not worldly gain. It promises us himself. In my opinion, there is no more dangerous teaching within the church today. Friends, I hope you join me in making our ministry here together and our mission to to not accept this warped version of the gospel. It not only makes promises that it can't keep, but it does more to hide the true gospel message than anything else within the church today. The bottom line is, friends, imitation is the first step in discipleship. You can't say you're a follower if you're not willing to follow. can't say you're a disciple of Jesus if you're unwilling to be like Jesus. I love these words of, of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians when he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. That is scriptural. Follow. That's the root of it. We mimic or we imitate our way into being disciples. That's the first step, the foundation. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? You do what Jesus did. 
Now let's not get confused here. We're not saying that somehow you or I can earn our salvation. We cannot be Christ Himself. That's not what we're talking about at all. It's more along the lines of that uh, cheesy 90s commercial from Gatorade. Any other millennials here remember that? Want to be like Mike, right? Michael Jordan, all the kids trying to be like Michael Jordan. Well, if we want to be like Christ, not like Mike, then we need to train like Christ trained. And let's not pretend that simply going through the motions of fasting from something, abstaining from something, is what's going on here either. Right? It's not an empty tradition. It's a living tradition. It's a handing on of a truth. One Christian author writes, physical fasting, essential as it is to the practice, so spiritually fasting from coffee is not going to do me any good. It is essential. But it's not only meaningless if it's only physical. It's truly dangerous, he says, if it's disconnected from the spiritual effort, from prayer and concentration on God. Remember those of you who were with us a couple weeks back when Ron was preaching in the Game Changers series. He talked about how the decoupling of the physical and the spiritual is a deeply unchristian idea. Right? Sometimes we have this idea that our faith is purely spiritual. But the Gospel of Jesus Christ is one that addresses persons. Not spirits. Not bodies. Mind, body, soul. However you want to bundle it all together, whole persons. And so we fast with this in mind. It's not simply that our whole selves are being molded and shaped into the image of Jesus. But it's see how in His fasting, Jesus pointed back to what? To Scripture. Right? How when the devil came to him and tempted him and put him through trials, he didn't rely on his own strength. He pointed back and says, it is written. Man does not live on bread alone, but on the living Word of God. That's Scripture. And this is where he's leading us in our fasting. And this is where we hope to go deeper in the coming weeks. Man does not live on bread alone but on the living Word of God. It's not only that he's quoting Scripture. See, that, that's from Deuteronomy, the book of the law in the Old Testament. But it's also talking about how Scripture is real. Scripture is the true sustenance for our whole person. If we fast because Jesus fasted, and fasting teaches us to be like Jesus, then we cannot lose sight of the fact that the living Word of God is able to care and to give us nourishment for our whole person. We'll pick this up more next week. Let me close here with a reading from one of my favorite theologians. His name is Alexander Schmemann. Kind of an unfortunate name, if you ask me. <clears throat> Russian. He says, it will be a real fight. And probably... We shall fail many times. But the very discovery of the Christian life as fight and as effort is the essential aspect of fasting. A faith 
which has not overcome doubts and temptations is seldom a real faith, friends. Do not give up. No matter how many times you fail, sooner or later, fasting will bear its spiritual fruits, he says. In fact, he goes on and says, be patient with yourself, for there is no shortcut to holiness. For every step, we have to pay full price. You know, all this talk about tradition. I love how Shemaiman ends that. Every step, we have to pay full price. It's a perfect lead-in, isn't it? to our weekly celebration of supper, of communion together. A reminder of the one who paid full price. And in 1 Corinthians, when the Apostle Paul is talking about communion to the church, what does he start with? He starts with a definition of tradition, right? For I received from the Lord what I have also passed on to you, the handing on of a practice contains a deep and powerful. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took a cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you bow with me? Father, we come to this, your table, as guests. As guests who recognize and honor the fact that you paid the full price. That you are not only the host of this meal, but you are the meal itself. That your sacrifice on that cross paid for our sins. Help us to be like you. Help us to follow in your ways. Help us to live a real faith that faces trials and testing. Send your spirit now on these gifts the bread which represents your body, and the cup which represents your blood. Make it for us a real nourishment for our whole person. Amen.